Hello everyone and welcome to the Manacast. Conversations about a vision of life that is truly good news for us, for our neighbours and for the world. My name is Jacob Garrett and with me is Jonathan Cornford. G'day folks. Manacast is Managum's podcast. Managum is all about the intersection of Christian faith with ecology and economics. We record the Manacast from the lands of Aboriginal peoples. I'm talking to you from Wurundjeri country in Melbourne. Where are you talking from today, John? Uh, as usual, from Bendigo, Central Victoria, which is on the lands of the Jarjawarung people. We'd like to acknowledge these peoples as the traditional custodians of these lands, and we pay our respects to their elders, past and present. First thing to say for this episode is that this is a part two on Christian vocation. So if you haven't already listened to part one, episode 20, you might want to go back and listen to that one first, because we give a wider context to the idea of Christian calling through history and where it comes from, how we get to where we are today with it. This episode is going to be more about the specifics of how that might play out in our context. And I suppose the first thing to say today is we probably sounded a bit down on individual call or the idea of an individual call on your life in episode one, but I know people personally who have experienced something that they'd describe this way, whether that's to go to a specific country as a missionary or to take up a particular role that they've discerned is right for them in this um point in life, whether that's in their family or in the world. So I guess we should say it's quite a complex idea that's talked about in lots of different ways, depending on which Christian subculture you're in. What do you make of the idea of an individual call, John? Yeah, yeah. No, it's good to come back to that because, um, yeah, it's important to, it is a thing, right? It's important to acknowledge that it is, um, that there are people who have experienced it as a something, uh, a strong thing in their lives. Um, I think what we did last episode where we effectively chucked it out was important <laughs> because uh, the idea of individual calling has been so obstructive to really seeing the the what the New Testament is really calling us to, which is a generic call on on the for all people who come to Christ. Uh, and we describe that as a threefold call to being called to a new life in Christ being called to a new community and being called to share with God and reconciling the world back to God. Um, And so, you know, uh, the idea of individual calling has sort of tended to blot that out. But if those things are firmly in place, I think it it is important to come back to or necessary to come back to the the question of individual calling simply because people do experience it. It it is a thing. Mm. But I think so. It's I guess we need need to say firstly that the idea of individual calling has to be conditioned by and disciplined disciplined by the uh, the generic calling on all Christians. It can't contradict that or be something other than that. Um, yeah. So I think that's that's a really important thing to say. So um, you know the idea that God is calling me to be a stockbroker and make squillions of dollars. <laughs> doesn't really fit with that generic calling on on people to a new life in Christ and to be reconciling the broken things of the world back to God. Yeah, and it's not allowed to trump that call, even if you feel it really strongly. That's right. That's where a bit of community discernment might be needed to help someone clarify what's actually going on there. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, um, yeah, so it's a, a sense of individual calling uh, needs to be uh conditioned by generic calling uh 
That said, it's important to recognize that some people experience it, but also to recognize that there's many people who don't. So um, it's something that is out there, a, a part of a human experience, but it's certainly not um, universal. And I think that's really important to, to acknowledge because uh, some people, it's important to honor the, the people who have had a sense of it, but it's also important to honor the people for whom that's just a completely foreign concept. Mm. And it's not a it's not a prerequisite to having a fulfilling or faithful life. Not at all. We don't need yeah. an individual calling it at all because the New Testament is quite cl- quite clear on those sorts of things. And as we we said, if we have those sort of that sort of threefold understanding of what we're being called to in Christ, then you can do anything. <laughs> it doesn't matter. You know, mm. God is happy with what you do if you're doing those things. However, you do it. Mm. Hmm. And there's so many thousand different ways that that there's can play out. So many different things to be done uh, within that picture. Yes. So I guess that leads me to ask you, though, have you had a sense of calling one sense or another? Like different people mean different things. Some people mean a, a literal voice. Some people mean just a, a sense they can't escape or get away from something that came to them for no reason. Like people are quite different on how they would describe it. But would you describe yourself as having a sense of individual calling? Yeah. Okay. So that's a good question. Look. So personally, I would. Um, it's. I think it's really important, uh, and maybe we can't do it f- properly here. Um, but it is important to acknowledge. You know, we talk the sort of language by which we talk a, a sense about God calling me to do something. We don't have a lot of, um, we're not very good at talking about what that is, how that we experience that really. We're, and some, there's a, can be, a, I guess, a level of spiritual dishonesty in Christian world around talking about how God speaks to us and how we experience it. How do we know it's God? All that sort of stuff. Um, so with, all, with those caveats, um, let me just say, I, I have had as a young person, I had a very strong sense of being pulled in a direction and that I would describe that as within me i certainly didn't have a voice saying you must do this or must do that but it was you know it's like that my passion was powerfully directed in in a certain direction which was accorded with what i read in the bible and that was so as a young person i would have described that as being called to the work of justice Mm. Uh, and that accorded to with you know what i read in jesus and the prophets particularly and so that felt like, you know, I was being called to something and I had to figure out how to try and express that. And that led me to study history and politics. That seemed a good way to, you know, try to understand why the world is as it is and how we might change it. Um, so that was quite, that was really uh, important for me. But I, I had the interesting experience, Jacob, of, so after finishing my, my first doctorate we went in uh, Kim and I moved to a Christian community in Melbourne so we'd been living up in North Queensland uh, where we were basically living and working in a community and working amongst homeless people uh, really at the at the, the the very gritty human grassroots level mm. and I won't go into the full story but through that process I was led to and it had a lot to do with my reading of the temptation narratives in the gospel um I was led to the conclusion that I needed to give up my sense of calling, right. that it was actually obstructive to um, uh, basically following what I was 
beginning to see as the will of God for me here and now. And here's here's where, you know, I think it's a good example because we can use the term vocation and calling as very abstract things when out there in the ether, when really they mean, because we're talking about God, they mean nothing other than what God is addressing to us here and now. So it's not, no different from the, the question of discerning the will of God for us. And at that time, I it seemed to me through for a variety of reasons um, that God was leading me to do things I wasn't good at uh, and didn't feel gifted at and didn't particularly, some of which I didn't want to do so much, uh, but I could see the need and I was there and um, felt called in a different sense to mm. do them. And I had to give up my sense of calling because I also had come to realize that so much, uh, I, there's a quite a lot of ego and ambition and maybe a few delusions of grandeur in my <laughs> in my <laughs> sense of calling. Uh, and and I did, I, I gave it up for a period of years, um, but I sort of got it back over a period of years as well. It came back um, in a different form. And I would say it's sort of the same calling uh, that I had as a young person, but differently understood. And it, it's it's like it's been given back to me. Uh, yeah, that, that, like refined, purged, perhaps. Yeah, and that's yeah. I guess that's still unfolding. But but what about you, Jacob? Have is that something that's been uh, uh, something you've experienced in your life? Um, I guess sort of like what I was saying in the first episode. I kind of have always felt like I wanted more of a specific call than I've ever experienced. Um, yeah, I felt like that would make the decision making process and also the the sort of uh, angst involved in trying to decide how to how to live a lot easier and also give me a stronger sense of this this is good this is right this is meaningful those kinds of things hmm. um but i've also it's interesting that you say like you part of the calling you got that refined that first sense you had was about things you didn't really want to do or didn't feel like you were good at and it's often been a tension in me like sometimes i read people who it seems like they're the right person for the job exactly because that's what they don't seek and they don't want it. Yes. Um, I think of like, you know, early church bishops being um, in, incorporated into the bishophood against their will. I think St. Augustine even had his nose broken because it was such a violent process that he was resisting. Right. Um, and, and there's something romantic and kind of like, um, yeah, there's something a bit interesting about like the person who wants the job the least is the person that should be doing it. But I, I guess there's also that intention with, well, God actually has given different people different gifts and skills and abilities. Mm, yep. And it would be senseless probably to just like force people to do what is in the exact opposite direction to those. Um, so, yes. yeah, I would say for me the, the feeling of calling is a bit unresolved and a bit nebulous around those things. Yes. And I've certainly never had something as, as clear as a voice or something like that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And that, that's um, the question of, um, you know, whether where how our gifting fits in with our calling is an interesting one. Maybe we'll we'll we'll, we'll come back to that one. Because mm, I'm I'm wary of letting your gifts define or determine what you ought to do. Because it might be like to take your stockbroker example. Yes. It might be that you're really good at making squillions of dollars. It still doesn't mean that's how you should be using that gift. So it's not obvious. 
And I think, yeah, and that's where there's any sort of cookie cutter approach to this is is really not going to cut it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so to speak. It's not going to cut the cookie. Uh, yeah, it be, so there's so much um, nuance and discernment involved. Yep. Yeah, yeah. But I guess on this episode, we kind of said we'd be getting into, to the extent we have a choice in our context, now that's different for everybody, constrained by different things. But to the extent we have a choice, it does seem like there there is some sort of responsibility that can lead to some sort of pressure or burden that perhaps leads to that paralysis that some people experience. That like, oh man, I've got so many things to do. How do I choose? Um, and for other people, it just ends up being a bit of a, well, I'll just do anything then. It doesn't really matter. How do we go about beginning to decide where to put the majority of our time and energy given we can choose some of those things? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's really um, a, a big question for us, isn't it? And it, so, and to just go back to what we talked about last uh, episode is to, to emphasize how um, uh, that, that this is not necessarily normal for m most humans, the idea that we've got this, seemingly blank slate although it's never really a blank slate mm. but we've seemingly got this huge array of choice in front of us um or we're told there is at least uh whereas for for so many people through so much in the world today and through so much of history that's not the case um mm. so the fact that we do have a large amount of choice in what we do really um one is an enormous privilege we should see it as an enormous pri privilege and well with any privilege comes responsibility um so uh, just to just to to amp that up uh, let me read you a quote from um william temple one of the uh the think people who's been very influential for me he was archbishop of canterbury um uh around about the time of the second world war um mm. and he wrote this um he wrote that some young people and, and we could add older people as well these days, some young people have the opportunity to choose the kind of work by which they will earn their living. To make that choice on selfish grounds is probably the greatest single sin that any young, we might add older, person can commit. For it is the deliberate withdrawal from allegiance to God of the greatest part of time and strength. <laughs> which is a pretty, pretty big pretty big quote and so what what william temple's really saying there is you know and he's uh, to he's thinking about young people and they're thinking about employment and what they're really the work that we do whether it's paid work or unpaid work that is really the thing that occupies the bulk of our um waking hours which is our mm. energy that we spend on earth mm. um and if we have anything to give to god that's what we have yeah. uh, is to give our energy, uh, our, our waking uh, time on earth to God. Um, and he's saying, you know, if we, if, we, if we don't, if we have a choice to not use that choice towards uh, serving God's purposes in the world is a huge sin. Uh, and, you know, it's interesting. That's not, not one of the things that, you know, and in, I guess the church's well, various churches think about sin in different ways, but, you know, it's not usually one of the ones that comes up, up close to the top of the list. But mm, um, mm. Uh, Although we I, perhaps you see it in a more subtle form that like, and I think I've experienced this to an extent that I've, you know, having not even come across that quote, I've thought of 
a similar idea before when I'm trying to, you know, go to uni and outside of uni, figure out what I'm going to do. And I've thought, well, I don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to, like, this is such a big call. Yes. I don't want to choose the wrong thing. And maybe that's part of what led me to experiment with um, ministry, which I'm still yes. doing these days. Um, but potentially for other people, well, you know, just because someone is in ministry or doing any of these other jobs doesn't mean they've got the angst that I had. But potentially it's part of people doing those sort of safe Christian jobs, if you like, um, of like being a doctor or a nurse or a teacher, <laughs> like social worker, these sorts of things where it's like, oh, well, okay, at least at least that one's all right. That I don't have to worry about whether that one's doing good in the world. There might be some angst for some people involved in that that leads them down particular paths. And I guess it's just not quite the right way to make that call because you can, as we said, the generic calling can be lived out in every setting. It, it can. And certainly, so certainly let's, let's make clear that certainly William Temple wasn't saying that um, everyone should try and go into some form of Christian ministry, quote unquote. Um, yeah. uh, and he was off. I mean, William Temple was very closely connected to working men and their working men's struggles and movements. Um, it was mostly men back then. Yeah. Uh, uh, there was probably he some involvement with women's uh, movements as well, um, but yeah, he's he is really addressing uh, people generically and really uh, thinking about the broad range of work that people might do out in the community, and that really was central for him. Um, so I guess we shouldn't be surprised that um, Christians have ended ended up overrepresented in the. Helping professions. When I say overrepresented, I don't mean that. Um, there that should be fewer of them. There should be fewer, <laughs> uh, but that there are more. You know that they're proportionally higher Christians in those professions, and I think that's is a reflection of the fact of people wanting to live out their faith. I think that that is an outward uh, and a proper one. Um, that uh, you know, people, whether it be social workers, doctors, psychologists, uh, teachers, those sorts of things, are Christians. Uh, do tend to feel more inclined in that direction. That's because I think that is a result of the work of Christ in their lives. Mm. Um, that doesn't mean that the, that the question's answered, though, if you choose a helping profession. And also it doesn't rule out a whole bunch of other things that need to be done in the world um, because we do need plumbers and mechanics and builders and there's all sorts of things out there. Um, so then the question begins, how do, you know, how do, people think about those sorts of work how you know one what what i choose and then how i do it because mm, mm. it seems like the the standard story if we can call it that is basically whether you're a christian or not a christian find a job or career that merges your skills and your interests or your passions you know that classic follow your passion line yeah yeah uh for some people that might also be merge that with some sort of need in the world you know yes. what are you good at what do you like doing and what does the world actually need? Yes. That's not necessarily a bad starting point. Um, but we talked about the phrase before of like do anything as long as you're not lazy and as long as you perform it to the glory of God. I'm not, I'm not, and I said I'm not really happy with that. That doesn't seem like enough. It doesn't seem pointed enough. I really like the writing of Soren Kierkegaard on this sort of thing where he's constantly telling Christians in Christendom that it's way too watered down. There's just, it's, there's not enough teeth or, or substance to the idea of being a Christian in his setting. 
And he has these biting words to say in a well-titled volume called Provocations. He says, It's actually quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, (laughs) we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How will I ever get on in the world? (laughs) And he's basically just saying we play it so safe. We want to have our cake and eat it too. And we make everything into something that can be performed to the glory of God rather than, at least for Kierkegaard, accepting the idea that living to the glory of God will mean sacrifice, maybe even to the ruin of your life, at least in worldly terms. Yes. So that's, um, yeah, they're they're them's fighting words, isn't they? (laughs) Um, um, Yeah. Look, in one sense, you know, the statement, um, do what you're good at or what your gifts and find find the combination between what you're good at and where the the need of the world is. Look, I I think that's a really good framework. uh, But as you've pointed out, we do need to say more uh, because I guess what is generally missing in the background of how we think about those things is the bigger countercultural ethic that Christ calls us to, that new new life in Christ uh, mm. uh, and the idea uh, that it it reshapes how we think about everything, what we might do, how we do it, and the cost we might have to bear in doing it. Mm. And that's even if we're in one of those sort of, you know, even as a minister or as a nurse or as a parent, something that like I think most Christians would say, these are good occupations. These are good things you should put your time and energy towards almost as a, a kind of blanket rule. Yeah, absolutely. So um, I think so. As we, it's not enough to say uh, to go into a helping profession, say a social worker or a doctor, uh, and say, okay, I'm now doing a good profession. I'm serving the world, and I'm just going to do it. And you know, and particularly, let's note, you know, for a doctor, um, that is not separated from a very high level of remuneration. So Mm. what we don't like to bring those. So the question of actually what do we get out of this uh, is generally, you know, that's kept neatly to the side uh, or not tackled. Um, so the idea of uh, what am I getting out of this, but also the idea, you know, we live in a in a world. So if you're a doctor um, in a health system that has all sorts of complexities, if you're in a in a hospital, it's incredibly managerial and often at times in human environment, doesn't see people very well because mm. there's big mm. systems. Uh, there are all sorts of ethical questions coming up in modern health. Uh, the idea that to be a doctor for Christ in the system may involve having to bear some cost if you're going to stand up for people. Uh, you know, So rather than just doing health work and being a health worker, actually... Uh, caring about the people that come you come into contact with and not treating them as a number or just a piece of meat to be fixed but actually a soul hmm. um, that that you may have to fight management in in if you're in a big structure or if you're in a GP practice where uh, you're you're being forced to meet all sorts of um, you know target numbers or something like that for the for the profit of the practice uh, if you you're thinking about doing it for Christ you, you may have to fight uh, some hard fights uh, and 
you may be up against forces much bigger and more powerful than you. Um, and they're the sorts of things that uh, we don't think about Christ being called the call of God to a profession, but involve something like what we might call martyrdom. Mm. But it may. Mm. Um, it, that may be the case for a social worker. Um, if you were a social worker um, in Centrelink in the last 20 years, there have been probably a number of points where you might think, actually, is what I'm being asked to do by the government, by my government now, uh, something which is a, a, an ethical bar I can no longer go past? Uh, it's a, a line too far. Um, you know, um, there might be professions that we think is generally okay, but the conditions on which we're being asked to conduct them change, and therefore we need to reevaluate. Um, yeah. You yeah. know, I, I think there's all sorts of ways in which we could fill out that picture. Yeah, for sure. And certainly it's not just in those professions. It might be that you're in an office or you're a tradesperson or whatever. There's like, I mean, we've just published an article by Clinton Bergsma in the most recent edition of Matter Matters in August, which talks about him working with carpenters to build a house. And he's trying to build a house according to sustainable principles you know that's a slippery term but he's he's trying quite hard to go okay what's involved in this process what does what does a good news home really look like yes both the outcome as well as the process of getting to that house and he says yeah it's an uphill battle trying to get carpenters or tradies to recycle stuff instead of just throw it out or it's an uphill battle to work with the bureaucracy to do a toilet differently or whatever it is there's all these sorts of fights that like you can't you probably can't fight every battle as hard as you could fight but you got to pick some battles and there are so many battles to fight in every industry in every area of life yeah that's a i, I my mind went to the same example actually jacob is a clinton story thinking of the building industry what we need homes so we're in a housing crisis we do need builders but we don't nest we don't need just any homes being thrown up one uh, we are facing a, you know, an energy and a water crisis across the country. Uh, and so this is about, and climate change is, is upon us. Uh, so we need homes that are actually well built for climate change to be less, uh, more energy efficient and more water efficient. Uh, we need uh, building processes that are less destructive in terms of waste. And, you know, just the, um, so if you're a builder, just to say I'm building homes for people doesn't cut it to say, oh, OK, I'm serving God by building homes. There, there are a bunch of other questions we need to ask. You know, how are you treating the materials you're using? You know, um, uh, to be a countercultural builder would be to be someone who tries to recycle as much as they can do, which puts you at a immediately puts you at a competitive disadvantage with mm. other builders who mm. don't care and will spend less time sorting their waste and. Um, but that's something, so that means to do that, you would have to be a builder who accepts less money, lower profits, uh, who doesn't need to earn $150,000, $200,000 a year. I don't know what builders earn. It's pretty <laughs> good guess. money sometimes. Yeah. Um, but if you're, pre so here's an interesting question. If you being prepared to accept less money in that context frees up the builder to do all more all sorts of more creative things to think about how they might um, express Christ's reconciling work in the world. Um, mm. So that's how they build the home, who they build it for, 
you know, under what conditions uh, yep. and, you know, what's the target cl- and who are the customers and what's the mechanism by which the house is being sold and transacted, all that sort of stuff. Or these are the, that's the nitty gritty questions of justice and oppression that, that, that we face in our, in our current economy is around these sorts of things, but nobody's thinking about, uh, really, mm, mm. you know, uh, but they are the sorts of things that Jesus would, would uh, hone in on quite quickly. Or to get away from jobs, like or like you know, careers. If you're a person who owns more than one property in Australia, there, as you said, there's a rental crisis. I've just been inspecting rental properties for the last few months before I've decided. Oh, actually, I've got to take a different approach because it's so competitive. Yes. And you're trying to apply for these properties. There's always someone better. There's at least ten or fifteen applicants at the moment. If the property owner simply approves the person who's going to be the quietest and has the steadiest job, it's only going to allow for certain people to rent those properties or in those areas or, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas if you're the homeowner, you can choose who rents your property. You're not allowed to be discriminatory, but you can discriminate in that other sense of we're going to actually choose someone who might be more trouble to be a tenant or might be more risky financially as a tenant or might mean that we take less rent per week as a landlord so that those people can live in this area in this property hallelujah some more idea of what it might <laughs> my idea of what it might be to be a christian landlord um look i think um coming back to the workplace um you know in australia today there is not really much ways in which um christians are persecuted for their faith um perhaps you know <laughs> I, perhaps today some Christians feel that um, because their faith is ridiculed in the public sphere that they're persecuted. Mm. That really uh, is not um, what persecution has been like historically for Christians mm. or, or elsewhere still, in the world. Still in some places in the world today. Yeah. Um, it's not persecution. The one place which I think uh, actually following Jesus might really lead to suffering, uh, to Christ, um, suffering for Christ is in the workplace. Uh, and that's and that's not by standing up and saying, I'm a Christian and becoming unpopular in the mm, workplace. Mm. I, I mean by actually standing up for substantive issues for the things that Jesus would stand up for. That may be resisting management on on some new system by which you are to handle your clients or customers, you know, uh, and that you can see is going to dehumanize them, is going to lead to injustices and therefore there's a line has to be someone has to call it mm. uh and that uh you may have to call uh some of your your workmates out on on some things uh so in the the workplace i think i'm not saying that every christian should go and try and suffer in the, in the <laughs> workplace please do not hear me to be saying that but i think we should have it in mind as a very real possibility if we are if we're following the way of Jesus, we sort of have stripped that idea out that following Jesus might cost us something. And it needs to be there as a possibility if we're to do justice to justice, mm. uh, you know, in the in the forms of work in which we find ourselves. Yeah. And you're not saying suffer by fighting some losing side in the culture war or fighting a battle that, you know, is just about identity politics in the workplace or something. You're saying Basically, what are the issues that if you never were identified as a Christian, if no one knew, 
you'd still be pushing for that or pushing against something else. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So I th- I think in terms of a social worker in Centrelink, uh, some this some of the social workers who began to uh, m- who call out the government on the breaching practices that they started to adopt about this is during the the Howard Costello years, mm. uh, and some of them paid a high price for um, you know uh, going public on breaching practices and the impact they would have it, or or more recently some the um, people who are involved with the immigration department uh, blowing the whistle on uh, on the way um, Im- uh, refugees are being treated offshore, uh, you know, and being, and there are prices to be paid, uh, mm. you know, uh, for, for standing up for uh, the issues of uh, trying to defend humanity or the, the the dignity of people, particularly the weak and the vulnerable, or it might be the earth itself. Um, mm. uh, yeah, I, I think that's something we need to put back into the equation of uh, following Christ in the workplace. Yeah. But I mean, within that, there's an inherent tension of, you know, we're talking in terms of martyrdom, paying a, a noticeable and significant cost but at the same time not every battle is one you should fight or should expect to win so there's always some sort of compromise you know take the hospital yeah. or take being a tradie trying to actually just yes. get by you yeah. might take a hit but you can't take every hit and still actually stay in that job yes yeah yep. and sometimes and- it might mean losing the job but not always yeah, that and this look there's no, and you know this is where we want to cookie cutters will not serve. We what we need is wisdom and discernment. We need a group of people around us helping us uh, walk this journey because it's a commu- it's something that has to be discerned communally. We need other people to help us do it. Um, it needs groups of people to be formed in the way of Christ to undertake that sort of discernment. Um, mm. You know, uh, but yeah, I think that's. Um, it's it's difficult and complex stuff, but it's the stuff of life, actually. What people are actually fa- the the sorts of conundrums and questions that people are facing in their real life uh, workplaces, or if they're not employment places, that the sorts of uh, other work that they're having to do uh, in the world. Mm. And it goes back to that um, idea that you're part of a new community as part of your Christian vocation that. If you try and do this all on your own, under your own steam, there's, you're going to get burnt out quite quickly and you're going to run up against impossibilities quite quickly that one person can't do. Yep. Yeah. 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 Yep. I like that you said before about um, accepting less income because it does seem like as soon as you put some things in place around what is involved to be a successful builder financially, for instance, if you're assuming that you have to have a hundred thousand or one hundred fifty thousand dollars profit, it's it becomes very difficult to actually get much wiggle room. But it does seem like we often try and slip that kind of William Temple challenge of, well, I'll just get on with doing what I've got here to do before me. Can we get creative around uh, the wiggle room that we can create for ourselves in these things? Oh, absolutely. And I think not just get creative. I think we need to to get real mm. <laughs> and bring more things into the equation when we're talking about thinking about what work we do in the world. Um, 
to actually fess up and be honest that, that one of the really important things for people is how much money they're going to earn right and uh and we don't i don't think are usually honest enough about about talking about that um so you know and, and that goes to the question of how much do we think we need to live on you know what's here's a part of the question facing the the christian idea of calling and vocation is uh, what standard of living is acceptable for me and uh, what mm. you know what what can i live on uh so I, I think there's a i think there's a pretty sort of basic rule jacob which i think sort of works across the board oh yeah um, we'll see let's <laughs> let <me laughs> no cookie no cookie cutters and, but we can get basic rules that's good this is this is not a cookie cutter it's a principle yeah all right all <laughs> it's right it's a different like that that was my lawyer approach um, <laughs> Let me let me take the examples of lawyers, for example. Um, so my basic principle is this: the less, the lower the standard of living we're willing to accept in life, and I'm not going to name a an income level or a standard of living, but the lower that we can set that bar, the more freedom we will have in choosing, finding a vocation, choosing work, doing things that. Uh, expressed Christ's reconciling work in the world. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. You give yourself more options the fewer things you've already got set and fixed. Exactly. So if I'm a lawyer, to use that example, I'm trained as a lawyer and I want to I serve Christ uh, with my powers of the law. Um, but if I say, well, I, I, I basically need to live on $150,000 a year, then that pretty much limits the sorts of jobs that you can take, right? Mm. You're going to have to take certain sorts of jobs in certain sorts of organizations. But if you say, I could be happy with, let's just say $50,000 a year as a lawyer, then that means you could, you could think about uh, doing legal work in contexts that maybe don't, may uh, not pay as well or may pay less frequently. Um, you may be out in circumstances where there's not much money, um, you know, uh, non-government funding, uh, that you could do sorts of legal work for the poor and the vulnerable, the people who generally can't afford to pay for it, in contexts where where organisations may not be able to fully pay the market rate either. Mm. But you could be of real service there. You could bring your powers of the law to those contexts if you can accept a lower um, level of living and you have that choice. That doesn't rule out being a lawyer in some other context, um, and then we get we get to the context of well, if you are earning hundred, or let's maybe a, a doctor, for example, if you're working as a doctor, you're just in the hospital system, you're just going to earn a lot of money, right? Yeah, yeah. you basically <laughs> can't avoid it. Whether one, what, that doesn't mean you, as um, John Wesley was very clear on, earning a lot of money doesn't mean that you necessarily have to say all of that's mine, or I'm going to spend it all on me. Mm. Um, Anyway, we're getting into a that's <laughs> into a different subject area. That the point is, if we can if we can simplify our expectations around standard of living, we have more freedom about what we can do in the world um, to serve God. Mm-hmm. And it's worth saying, uh, both our episode nine, "Living with Less," talks a lot about this idea of taking a lower income or. Um, those sort of choices, as well as your lecture at an Eltham church towards a downshifting economy that we put out as episode 18 also touches on these things. Hmm. Yeah. 
Is there any final takeaway for us in our context? How do we sum up these things? What's what's the you said you're not you don't want cookie cutter approaches, but you want principles. Say I'm say I'm one of these people I know from my youth group days who's just entering the workforce, just finishing their degree. What do you say to them? How should we think about vocation as it applies to time and energy in their life? Um so uh going back to where we started, we'd need to think about that uh in a whole um think about how you're it's not just your job, but actually your whole life, a new life in Christ. That's the way that you live around money and stuff, um, including how your expectations around standard of living. You've been called to a new community that this is not just an individual thing. How are you sharing in your life with other people uh, and, and growing a, a community of faith and being called to Christ's work of reconciling the world back to God? How is your work going to express that? If you can bring those things together with your sense of uh, the gifts that you have and where you see need need in the world, uh, then you're on a pretty good track. I think you're 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 going along. You you've got a good place to start. Mm. It's almost like you should start with your vocation before you pick your work, whether that's paid, unpaid, employment, whatever. Your vocation comes. Your Christian vocation comes first. Yes, that's right. Ab- absolutely. Yeah. Um, so start with your generic vocation in Christ, uh, and then ask how um, thinking about employment, family, um, all those sorts of things uh, fit in uh, to that vocation. Yeah, fantastic. I think that's a good note to end on. Thanks for sticking with us through two episodes. If that's you, folks, we hope you enjoyed the discussion. Uh, If you liked these episodes, link them to a friend, send them through, recommend them. And please also, if you could, go to iTunes or whatever platform else you get this um, podcast on and give us a review. That really helps us get noticed in all the algorithms and all that kind of back stuff. In the meantime, if you want more good news economics, check out Manor Matters. That's that publication I mentioned earlier. We've just put out our August edition. Uh, That's available for free online at managum.org.au, or you can get a print copy also for free. Managum is a ministry funded entirely by donations. If you want to support the work that we do, making these podcasts, putting out Manor Matters, things like that, that same website, managum.org.au, that's the place to go. Many thanks to all of you who do. Thanks, John. I really enjoyed this discussion. I think younger me and current me gets a lot out of it. Thanks, Jacob. 